Welcome, Pudding People, to another episode of Everybody Loves Pudding. I am your host, Ken Seymour, flying it solo for the moment without my co-host, Richard Geiger. Uh, Today, we have with us a special guest by the name of Kurt Covert. He is a marketer. He is a copywriter. But more importantly, he is a game developer and CEO of Smirk and Dagger Games. Welcome, Thank you for coming to talk to us, Kurt. Oh, my pleasure. Man, that intro made me sound very important. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you are very important. You're very important to, to all of us uh, gamers that enjoy your products. Um, so a lot of our listeners have a, uh, a varied background and may or may not be completely familiar with who and what you are. You're, you're based out of Connecticut, correct? That's correct, yeah. So... Um, how long have you been uh, running uh, Smirk and Dagger? Well, let's see. Smirk and Dagger started up about uh, 15 years ago. Uh, it was probably even a little bit sooner than that, but I, I always count uh, the, the the official printing date of my first game as the, the launch of the company. And it took about, you know, two years to ramp up to that on my first design. What was your first game? Uh, my first game was called Hexex. Ah yes, that is a yeah. that is a classic uh, amongst uh, many gamer circles nowadays. Yeah, it was. Um, it was re- honestly, it boiled down. It was kind of a mean spirited uh, hot potato game with uh, with spell cards, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a, it, it's a blast to play. It still sells well today, in fact. So, when you're saying that you kind of timed this from the 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 first game, does that mean that, um, that you did, uh, just game design for yourself? You didn't work for any other companies before you were with Smirk and Dagger? That's correct. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I kind of entered the industry, um, with as much intelligence as I could gather at the time. Um, but you know, there were fewer resources uh, at that time, so I, I cold called a bunch of uh, companies that I, I knew and kind of respected, and uh, and see if they would take you know just a few minutes to talk with me and help me understand some of the pitfalls before I got there and fell into them. So, what motivated you to change? I mean, I guess what did you do before you did gaming? What what was that uh, that push that you needed to go, you know, this is obviously what I want to do, and this is this is how I'm going to do it. You know, it's, it's funny, because it's, it's, it's not like a, a very direct story in, in a lot of cases. I think, you know, I was like, um, most people listening, um, I, I'm just an avid gamer at, at my heart. Um, and, you know, in high school, I was, you know, like, you know, uh, into D&D, I had... Uh, a very unusual group of, uh, of players in for for the eighties. Uh, it was me and six women, um, all of whom were in the, uh, the the drama club together. We just had a blast playing that. But I really didn't get into board gaming until I got out to California. I moved out there to work in the film business, which uh, I did for about five years. And while I was on the set of one of the films, um, the the star of the film um, didn't end up hanging out with the director and the producer. He ended up hanging out with the production assistants uh, during break 
things. And one day, one day he opened up his trunk and he had not just, you know, he had laser tag equipment, he had board games, and he just wanted to, like, you know, goof around and have fun. Well, so Fritz Bronner uh, was his name, and he was the one who eventually kind of introduced me to modern board gaming. And in fact, he was working on a, uh, a game himself that I, I helped him play test. It was called um, Liftoff, Race to the Moon, um, which uh, he did have uh, published. Uh, God, yeah, it would have been late 80s, early 90s. And um, it was a simulation of uh, the, the moon launch mission, um, which uh, was just a uh, Lots of probabilities and dice rolling, but it was it was a lot of fun to to play and, and to test. But honestly, even then, I I didn't say to myself, "Oh, well, this is what I should be doing." But it did give me the the idea that yeah, you know what, I do love board games, and I I, I found you know uh, Tom Jolly's Whiz War and, and developed a, a true love of the uh, the backstabbing take that genre. Um. But I just kind of developed my own uh, expansion products for games that I loved, like Wiz War, like uh, Dungeon Quest, um, Starfleet Battles. Uh, you know, I did you know all kinds of little you know side projects, not for any reason other than to share them with you know my my friends, my playgroup. Hmm. And um, it wasn't until. Man, probably, you know, a number of years later that I ended up sinking about two years into um, creating expansion products for what was then a dead game. <laughs> uh, Last Unicorn created um, Star Trek Red Alert, which was, um, if you think about it, it's kind of like uh, today's X-Wing. Yeah. It was a ship-to-ship yeah, ship combat game where you used little pods and you flip them end over end in order to, you know, close range and fire. Um, it was a it was a great game, but uh, Last Unicorn ended up having uh, the Star Trek and the Star Wars license at the same time. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the Star Trek uh, license holders like, well, no, you got to make a choice. You can't have both of those. <laughs> and so they they ended up bailing on the product that they had just launched and it was a collectible game. So all the fans were like, well, uh, what do you mean? All we got was the base game. We love it. <laughs> well, you know, Oh, some of the behind and, the scenes stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the designer was great. He, he actually, um, you know, it was his baby, right? So he ended up releasing online all the data for the expansion that was planned, but obviously was never going to happen now. Well, so I was a graphic artist at that time, you know. Um, so I said, well, you know, I've got graphic skills, and these are pretty simple to do. I'm just going to make them look like they would have actually looked if they printed. Uh, and, and by the way, they, they really did. They're almost indistinguishable from the, from the actual game. So I, I spent two years creating that expansion and then two others along with... Um, community online that was a you know fans of the game and we just shared out the, the files um you know in the community which was great fun to build uh but at some point someone said well dude well, why wouldn't you just make your own game I and mean, you spent two years on this thing and again it was the first, i mean i never even considered it until someone mentioned it 
That's that's kind of awesome. So since you uh, <clears throat> since you did kind of exist in the gaming world even before you started designing games, does that mean that uh, you were also a convention goer early on? Did you tend to <laughs> tend to go before you went for business purposes? Oh my God, no! It's a great question. Um, my my dear friend Denise, uh, who was one of the, uh, the the women I used to play D and D with, she was a long time con goer, um, and she begged me for years to go out to Gen Con, um, and I was like, I don't. That seems like a lot of money to pay to me. If I want to sit and play board games, well, I'm going to just you know get together this weekend. I mean, <laughs> I didn't get it. I just truly didn't get it. And so, no, the very first time I went to a a, a major convention, um, I didn't I didn't really go to Gen Con until I actually had a product in hand. Oh, so you went to one of the maybe one of the other conventions, like an Origins or. Something of that nature, something a little closer to home. Well, you know what? I went to um, I went to a convention. I believe it was up in New Hampshire. Uh, uh, it was a local con for uh, for Janice, and I did go mm-hmm. to that one. And um, and you know, I had a great time. Um, you know, it was it was fun. Um, and there, I actually I met a a retailer who um, actually brought me. To my first Gen Con, hmm. I I was I was working on the prototype of Hexex at the time, and you know I was it was still early stages, and I was you know still kicking the tires, and making sure it was balanced and everything I wanted it to be, and um, uh, they they said hey listen uh, they sent me an email uh, after the show they said hey listen we're we were headed Gen Con and we just got a list of all the games that. We can no longer sell because uh, the publishers have claimed exclusivity. And we can't sell them right now. So that included a lot of the hotter titles that we expected to bring. We'd like to actually have some excitement created in our booth. Why don't you? Why don't you take that game you're working on if you're ready, and you know, create some and bring them to the show, and you can just sell them in our booth. Huh. So. I I did I you know now the the game wasn't printed and there was no such thing as Game Crafter at the time, so the only way I could produce the game is I went to my local copy center and I took like this uh, parchment uh, board stock and I xeroxed the um, the car- the cards black and white on on these things hand cut them hand assembled them into little plastic uh, magic boxes. <laughs> And, and, you know, so I set up my little card table at this, you know, uh, retailer's booth in the massive Genka Hall. This is the very first year it went to Indianapolis. Ah, excellent. So, so it was, it was, it was massive. There was a lot of excitement. This is the first time they were in a new city. And here I was in a little card table. It was me and my friend Justin. And we had a little sign, you know, eight and a half by 11 on our table. That's the only thing that marked us. And it just said, you know, play hex hex. <laughs> <laughs> so I would imagine at that point, I, if I were in your position, I would have started sweating bullets between, okay, I've got this amount of time to get not only the the game ready, but I have to 
uh, affect a presentation that I'm on a on a professional level and interface with with people. I, I would have been sweating uh, sweating into my shoes. Well, honestly, I I, I I got excited. I didn't really, I wasn't really nervous because there wasn't a whole lot of at, at stake at that point. Um, I was, you know, like I said, I was, I was a graphic artist, so so putting to the the final touches on the game really wasn't um, wasn't too hard for me. In fact, that's you know one of the, the things I enjoy is actually crafting the the, the look and feel of a of a game, and. Um, once I found a place that I, you know, I figured, well, you know, this is, I at least create it inexpensively or fairly so um, at the local copy center. I was like, okay, well, so great. So all I have to do is just drive out there and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, but I mean, the, the shell shock of walking into that hall uh, for the first time and for people who have not yet been to Gen Con, it is, it's staggering. And, and more so today than it was even then. But, um, it's just amazing. The sea of people, the amount of vendors, uh, the amount of games being introduced, and um, and to be this this little speck of dust on the exhibit floor was uh, was quite something. But yeah. that said, I ended up um, of of that handmade game of which I made a hundred copies to bring to Gen Con. Um, I sold seventy two of them. Wow. And when we had done that well without even a banner behind us, with just like people walking by and saying, you know, oh, sure, I'll play your little handmade game here. Wow, this is good. Let me get one. I said, you know what? When I came home, I, I sat down and I talked to my wife and I said, listen, I might have something here. <laughs> and I, I, th- I, think, I think I should pursue it. And at that point, that's when things got a little serious. So that kind of plays into kind of my my next question that I had for you. Um, you you know so you had your you had your game that you had just developed and you had uh, had had put it into test and effect at the first Gen Con. So now you've not only got to finish your game, but you're going to need a company behind it. You've got to got to start up what will be Smirk and Dagger. What was your original vision for your company, and has it changed over the years? Is it different now than it was when you first started? So interestingly enough, um, the company started, or the vision for the company started two years before that Gen Con. Um, when I first started, you know, uh, when, when someone first challenged me, hey, why don't you come up with your own game? Um, it sounds simple. Um, and so what I realized really quickly was that, um, when you build on someone else's brilliance and create expansion products for, for theirs, they, they've done all the hard work for you. Um, when you have to stare at a white piece of paper and like, okay, I'm going to create something now. Um, it's, it's a whole different world. And so the first two games I created, well, they looked beautiful because I could make them look beautiful, but they were boring as haste to play. Um, they were like uh, four-player solitaire games, each one of them. Mm. And I hated them. I just hated them. So I, I was like, well, maybe I really can't do this. But before I gave up, I said, all right, listen, um, at this point, I'm, you know, I'm also a, a marketer. 
um, let me let me do two things. One, what is the reason why I should even exist? What is it that I can bring to the industry that that people can't necessarily get elsewhere? What am I going to stand for? Like I, I looked at some of the mission statements of some of the board game companies out at the time. And a lot of them were like, you know, we make great games for everybody. Like, that's not a mission statement. That's <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, right. But then I did, I did find people who, who had, you know, you know, planted a flag and stood for something. So, um, and those are the companies that I actually reached out to. So I talked to Looney Labs and, uh, yeah, I thought they were great. They, they had that whole hippie vibe. Yeah. Um, I talked to, um, Gosh, uh, Twilight Creations, and they were all about horror games. Um, uh, and, I, you know, quite honestly, I, I also looked at um, uh, Cheap-Ass Games. Uh, yeah. had, a, had a great mission statement. You know, you already own all the bits, all the dice and all the pawns. Why don't you save some money? Here, we'll, we'll produce a, a cheap game, and you, you provide all the hard parts. And you could, you could buy five, five games for, like, you know, $7. <laughs> so... Yeah, that was but, an impressive uh, model. Yeah. Um, but in any case, so I said, well, all right, so you know what? I think I need to stand for something. I'm going to plant my flag somewhere. And my love for backstabbing games was what I focused on because, one, they were all high-player interaction, which, you know, I, I think that's a great game has a lot of that. And certainly it's what I was lacking in all my previous design. And they just make me laugh. Tom Jolly's whiz war. I just, I would be hysterical, you know, locking someone behind a wall or, or blasting them in the face. Yeah. So, um, so the idea of smirk and dagger came before anything else. And then I was like, great. Now that I've got this imaginary company, what would be the simplest nastiest game I could come up with with people doing terrible things to each other all the time. And <laughs> and that was about two weeks later, that's when Hex Hex was born. Yeah. Yeah, I remember actually I was at the first Gen Con as well and I I remember stopping by briefly and, and seeing your game and uh thinking it's like, yeah, that's that's right up Malady and we didn't have the same kind of a gaming group then that we did now so it's like well once we have people to play with that sounds perfect <laughs> well but, i'm shocked that you even remember walking by <laughs> well, it, it's it's hard to most of the first uh, gen con is seared into my memory because it was so incredibly different i had uh, yeah i had attended origins before but it wasn't the same didn't have the the same feel the same approach um and definitely not the same size um, so it was, that's, that's kind of like you were saying, being shell-shocked, it has, it has an enormous impact on anybody that's never actually uh, been before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you were talking a little bit about staring at that, that blank page and trying to create something from nothing. Is that the entire life of a game designer? What What is it like a day-to-day for for somebody that wants to put themselves in your shoes? What, is, what does it mean to be a game designer? Well, and I, and I think this is true of any creative in, endeavor. Um, the, the blank page staring is, 
is something you, if you're going to be successful, you, you quickly get past and you realize that you don't create anything uh, in that kind of a vacuum. Um, what you do is you go out and you experience uh, life and you experience um, the, the other things that the industry has to offer. You take in art. You look for inspiration really everywhere. You know, your, your mind ends up just switching over to being constantly open to what I'll call aha moments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so at some point, you know, even when you're not thinking I'm game designing, an idea will hit you and you'll be like, oh, what, oh, look, that's a cool idea. And you jot it down and you may not even fully form it right there, but you've got a pathway now. And while you're driving to, to work the next day, it'll start playing in the back of your head or you're showering or you're doing other things and it'll start building. So what you end up really doing is that game design isn't something that you sit down and do. Um, a lot of game design is what happens in the background as you're doing other things. And then finally, you have to now commit it to paper. You've got to put it in some kind of a form where you can understand whether you actually have a game or you just have an interesting idea. And then you can start layering the leg on top of it. Now, that ends up being the hard work of, of game design, but that's also the, the real fun of game design. Um, so, and, and what I found is, uh, and I think the, the adage is true, um, if you really enjoy something, uh, then it ceases to be work. And, you know, I, I, honest to, honest God, I, I've never worked harder than I have in this past year now that I'm doing this full time. And, and yet I don't necessarily feel like I'm working hard. Oh, so you were, the, you were splitting your time up until recently. Oh, yes. Yeah. For 14 years, I, um, I had a full time job. Um, that was a very demanding one. I, I was working as a uh, creative director at a marketing company. And I was working on Fortune 500 companies, uh, creating their marketing plans and designs and events and all sorts of things. Um, you know, sometimes I wouldn't get home till 9 p.m. at night. And Smirk and Dagger only existed between 9 and midnight for 14 years. Wow. Um, and it's it's very challenging. Now, I, the other thing was I I was a um, I, I still am actually a a one man company. So I wore all the hats. I you know I do all the design. I do all the graphics. I do all the logistics. Uh, I mean everything that there is to do at the company. I'm doing, and of course, I, you know, like I said, for for fourteen years. I was doing that every evening and on the weekends, just trying to push the nuts forward just a little bit every day to keep things rolling. Man. So, you know, in your spare time, pardon me, in your spare time, you're, you're putting these things together. You're putting your ideas together. So obviously with your experience in marketing, you were able to come up with a plan of how to, uh, how to make, both your brand and your games visible, but in terms of uh, production, 
um, and and integration of various aspects. If you're doing it all on your own, did you kind of contract out to people to finish some of the rough edges that you weren't able to do? Or was it really something that's like, hey, I've got all the materials I need. I don't really need an additional person. I just need somebody to print the games eventually. By and large, I really just needed someone to to print the games. Um, But that said, um, I did have a a very good uh, friend who was just integrally woven into the beginning of the the company, certainly. Um, Justin Brunetto uh, was someone I worked with uh, at the the agency. And, uh, you know, we were were good friends. And, you know, he got very excited about uh, this the idea of launching uh, a game company. And he wasn't really even into board games, but he, he was passionate about, uh, about the, this mission that I had and wanted to be like part of it. Plus we got to hang out and have, have a blast doing it. Um, but he was the guy I looked to to like help me kick the tire. He was a great sounding board. He would like poke holes and everything. So, um, so he was a great foil. Uh, to to what I was I was doing creatively, um, and um, and occasionally he would actually help and uh, do some graphics. The uh, the cover of Cutthroat Caverns um, that was uh, one of the ones that he actually jumped in and designed the logo and how how the box would lay out. Oh, um, cool. <clears throat> yeah, but by and large, um, it really has been. Um, me shouldering most of uh, most of the burden of the of the, of the work, and what I really needed to do was I needed to find um, people that could help me, you know, uh, print. That was the one thing I, I I couldn't figure out, you know, how to do myself. But everything leading up to that, I was I at least had a, a great skill set to work with. Hmm. So okay, so. You've got your you've got your game created. You've got it all printed out. I mean, obviously, Gen Con is an excellent platform to have a very very large gaming audience be able to see your product. But it's by no means the only convention, and not everybody can go to those. So a lot of people uh, tend to go to multiple conventions. In fact, we were just speaking with David Wong, an artist that tends to go to quite a few conventions to, to apply his, his artistic trade. How many do you tend to uh, attend in a given year in order to promote your game? Well, of course, that's changed drastically in this past year. Um, when I had my day job, um, there's only so much vacation mm-hmm. in the year that I could utilize. So, uh, you know, Gen Con took a whole week of that. Um, I did at one point, um, sometimes I did the gamma trade show. Sometimes I did origins, but I really tried to keep it to about two shows a year. Um, because that third week, you know, I wanted to take my family on a vacation. Yeah. Um, and, um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was, it was a little bit rough to manage that kind of free time, uh, and still try to, you know, build the, 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 the company out and get exposure. Um, but um, I, I, I was, you know, choiceful, and I, I chose what I thought would be the biggest impact shows. Um, again, sometimes it was 
making sure that retailers, you know, knew me better. And that's where I would pick the gamut trade show. And sometimes there was origins as another way to, to reach consumers in a different way. Um, plus there was the a local con, you know, if, if, if I could drive to a weekend con, um, like Dexcon um, down in New Jersey, um, I would absolutely do that. Uh, local cons were, were terrific, uh, con con and all sorts of uh, things nearby me. Yeah, that I can imagine, especially when you're starting to deal with trying to trying to have uh, visibility on a national or even international level, it would with a full time job be uh, incredibly difficult. Um, yeah. So now, of course, this year, yeah, this year I, I I'm tr- I'm on the road right now about two weeks out of every month on average, um, which is. Um, Probably more shows than I may do next year, but as my first year doing it full time, I really wanted to touch as many different um, areas, you know, that I maybe had had little exposure in um, as soon as I could, just to like kind of launch things off and then see. Well, did I feel like you know I had enough traction at that show? You know, is that is that a show that really you know uh, is really aimed at uh, showcasing? Um, publishers, or is it really more of a player con, and you're, you're kind of an afterthought? So I can be more choiceful maybe next year on, on the cons that I think I really should be at every year. So um, you were talking about you know when you were getting started in, and you you called a lot of people and got some advice. Every industry has its own flavor, uh, has its own appearance both to the outsider looking in like us individuals purchasing the games uh, and can sometimes be completely different from those on the inside of the industry. How would you characterize how the gaming industry is? Is it, you know, ultra competitive kind of cutthroat like your caverns or is it, uh, more more welcoming and supportive. I mean, when you when you made those calls to try and get the advice, did you get a lot of people saying, like, you know, I'd like to help you, but I'm busy, call somebody else? Or did, was it more welcoming than that? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've had, mm-hmm. um, I've got a, a fairly broad perspective on this because I've seen actually both sides of the gaming industry. And there there are two distinct sides to it. There is the, the hobby gaming side, um, and there's also kind of the more mainstream toy and game side where you, you find like, you know, Hasbro and Endless Games and things, you know, people who are going to have their games largely in, um, you know, Walmart and Toys R Us or mm-hmm. would have been Toys R Us. Um, um, and they are absolutely polar opposites of each other. Um, the hobby game industry, I found as I started making those cold calls, is by and large a very welcoming, uh, very open community of folks. Um, and um, and yeah, they they are busy and they, they they can't you know take every call you know, but um, but mostly people are really willing to give of their time, which is why um, I'm so giving of my time because I. I, I really believe in kind of the, the pass it forward thing and people were terrific. When I called up the companies I mentioned earlier, they took my calls. They, um, 
they listened in, in earnest to my questions. They answered them best they could. And interestingly, though, almost every single game company I spoke to, their, their, their number one piece of advice was, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't to, to scare me off uh, or because they weren't welcoming. It was because they understood the realities of actually trying to have a business in this industry. And it's, it's a hard industry. It's a very difficult industry to make money in. Um, it's, um, there are a lot of reasons not to do it. And, and they know, like I know now, that if, if you tell someone this is a terrible idea, do not do it, and yet you are compelled to do it and nothing is going to stop you, then that's the only way you'll survive in the industry. And, um, and so I often have very similar advice for other people. I'll, 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 I'll give them a whole bunch of information and then I will let them know exactly how hard it is and that think about it twice. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can imagine with the, uh, with the general budget of any given gaming individual or family only uh, allowing for so much capital in a given uh, fiscal year to be able to allocate to any games you've got to I would assume you would have to fight pretty hard to gain that attention and gain traction and develop that repeat customer that I liked your games enough before that I want to try another one now yeah well and that's and that's true especially now you know, back back then uh, it was there were fewer games released each year and now it's you know a store can't even carry them all um, and that's that's made it very challenging in the industry. But we were talking about um, kind of the, the openness of um, of the industry, and one of the things that I, I found the the most different about the two sides is um, as it relates to game designers in general. Um, game designers in the hobby industry think nothing of going out to a convention and showcasing their games and getting you know players anywhere you know, that don't know them, you know, just try my game and get feedback. And quite honestly, I recommend that people do that because I think that's how you get the best feedback because your, your family and friends will spare your feelings. But uh, at some point you need to be, you need to hear that the, the baby's ugly. Um, but what's really interesting is that on the opposite side um, where game designers are called inventors, um, it is extremely hyper-competitive, super tight-lipped, and they're great people, and they, they, you know, we make friendships and we, you know, um, certainly trust each other, but not with what really on that side are almost considered trade secrets. Um, you, you don't talk about the game you have in development, even thematically. You don't talk about mechanics, you certainly don't sit down to play with anyone um, who might be a competitor. And um, and I think maybe it's because at, at that point, you know, maybe the, um, the rewards of having a game signed could be a lot more lucrative. There's certainly a lot more volume if you sign with a Hasbro than if you sign with like a Smirk and Dagger, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so that's probably 
why that exists. But it was such a, a such a difference that it was um, really striking to me. And for a while, I had um, I had some designs that didn't quite fit into Smirk and Dagger, and I was looking for like some some big volume hits. So I started um, pitching, uh, you know, the the, the big guys. Um, and uh, became in, involved in the the other side of the uh, the game industry, and kind of learned the very different ropes over there. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it was uh, pretty pretty wild the differences. So, um, well, and, you know, I, I, I'm, at some point, I'd love to see about kind of the transitions of how some of these some of these companies that start small and end up becoming these titans. Uh, end up altering the way that uh, everything works. I, I mean, like maybe like a Whiz Kids or, or something like that. Seeing exactly how that culture shifts and if they uh, if they've had uh, some some differences in the way that they look at the world and and uh, approach things. Well, no doubt, I no doubt they do. Though I think that um, if you remain in the hobby industry. Um, you are connected still to the same community and, and therefore I think the, the attitude is still fairly similar. Obviously though, when it comes into licensed properties and other things, you know, until everything is, is signed, sealed and delivered, you can't talk about, you know, well, I've got, you know, the potential to do the Star Wars license. Well, you, you just can't talk about that until you are ready to announce that officially. Yeah. Um, so things like that will impact a, a, a larger company, certainly. But I think any company in the in the hobby space um, is still um, fairly approachable. They always seem seem to be. Uh, I've been to a, a, an array of different conventions of of a couple of different types and and. The, the the feeling that you get, I think, is one of the reasons that these gaming conventions thrive like they do. It doesn't yeah. doesn't feel like they're standoffish or just trying to shell or or sell you something. That there's there's a feeling of genuinely wanting to connect with the with the customer base that's there. Yeah, I think it's because it's a passion based industry. Yeah. We're, we're all in here not because this is a great way to make money. We're in here because we all have a passion for what we do. That definitely makes sense. So as your passion carries you to make this thing, well, uh, kind of the last question I have that regards specifically what it means to be a, a game designer, um, what is something that from an outsider's perspective uh, that – is somebody that would talk to you would not expect you would have to deal with or didn't expect there was um, uh, so much involved in a certain aspect of your business, something that's maybe, it may or may not be surprising, but just maybe when you first started taking on making games, what is something that you go, wow, I didn't think I'd have to deal with that or I didn't think that it would be going this way? Oh, boy. Um <laughs> There were a lot of surprises that waited me. <laughs> um, gosh, well, yeah. So, man, I, I've got a, I've got a couple great answers to that. I'm trying to figure out 
how to tailor these. Um, so the first thing is, um, and one of the things that, that I see people talk about actually um, online a lot, um, sometimes people will, you know, look at a game company and either an expansion comes out um, very quickly, you know, after the, the base game or uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, there's some sense that um, there's like a, even like a, a money grab that some companies may may have that they're they're creating products or delaying you know pieces that should have been in the base game you know they're just you know just because they they, they want to get as, as much money as they can and they're they're making money hand over fist and boy the truth of it is that it is almost it is hard to make money in the game industry. And so much of the money that gets made goes right back into producing more product. Um, and um, one of the mo- most difficult things, uh, especially now, that I have to deal with is, man, all right, well, this game did pretty well. Do I reprint it? Ah, uh, okay. Right? Yeah. Because now it's all about the, 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 the hotness, you know, the, the game that came out, you know, three weeks ago. Well, in seven weeks, will people care about it anymore? And it's a risk. Anytime you, you, you hit the print button, you've just invested twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 in product. And if it doesn't sell, that's twenty dollars or $30,000 that's sitting in a warehouse that you can't move necessarily anymore. Wow. Um, so it's, it's a real hard decision. People are like, well, why, why don't you just, you know, reprint X game? Well, because it started to slow down and now I don't know if I should. And the same thing goes with expansions. Um, if a game is wildly popular and you think there, there's an audience for it, you have to find a way to keep it fresh. And that's why I think expansions happen because the the long tail of games has has kind of disappeared. So, um, in order to keep keep people you know engaged in your game, oftentimes those expansions are what fuel the reason to continue making it. Um, so it's it's a complicated uh, it's a complicated decision on what games get made, what games get supported through expansions and what games, you know, continue to be printed. And it's an agonizing feeling. Plus, you never know how many to make. Um, mm. you know, even even retailers have, you know, certainly complained, well, you just didn't plan this well enough. You know, it just launched and it's now completely sold out. Well, it's always lightning in a bottle. You don't know which of the games that you produce every year are actually going to hit and have traction. You know, if yeah. you printed... 10,000 of every game you did, you would be bankrupt. Yeah. Um, and if, um, you know, if, if you, if you only produce what you think, you know, you would sell, um, conservatively, you're probably always going to run out, um, just as the game is hitting its stride. So every time, every time you produce a product, it is a huge gamble. And 
that is that's the stuff that keeps most of us up late at night pulling our hair out. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, uh, especially now my my very <clears throat> first my very first game. Um, I, I I never did Kickstarter, uh, and Kickstarter way back when didn't exist. Yeah. Um, so when I printed Hex Hex. I had to convince my wife it was a good idea to put our house on second mortgage to pay for the game. That's a uh, that is a, a nail biter, a, a nerve inducing situation right there. Yeah, and it took us several years to actually pay that off uh, because, again, the money I made went back not just to pay pay some of that loan off, but I had to I had to now finance the next game. Yeah. So, um, so there was only a portion each year I could put towards that loan. Um, but you know, I finally was able to knock that, you know, knock that down and, uh, you know, continue to, to roll and then, and, and print new things. But, um, and then it got to the point where, you know, the, but the business kind of funded itself. Now I never actually took, a salary. Oh, I never, I never, I never made any money. I for for a good seven years, I was just reinvesting in my company. So it was, a, it was all passion at that point. It was all passion, and you know, quite honestly, it's really not far from that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, un- until you have you know one of those, oh my god, game of the year, and every store has to carry it. And, Every gamer needs a copy of it. You know, it's a hand-to-mouth kind of a an industry. You know, you're not you're not getting rich doing it. Um, you're doing it because you love doing it. Yeah. And um, and certainly that's been the case for me. Um, at this point, you know, like I said, this is the first year I'm doing this full time, and and actually have to feed my family doing it. So um, I took all 14 years of my uh, my savings of, of, you know, doing this and reinvesting in the company and not taking money out of it, that bankrolled this year. And now it's a big roll of the dice to make sure that on the other side of this year, I've got money to reinvest in new product and my family is still, uh, you know, Eating. clothed and fed. Yeah. Well, hopefully so, because I, I know I've, uh, I know I've enjoyed your games over the years and, uh, oh, thank you. especially with the, uh, the, uh, Slight tonal shift with uh, smirk and laughter, which I'll get to with a question here um, in a minute. It, it's it's uh, it seems like it definitely has has legs to keep going. Um, but you know, talking about that that taking on this full time as opposed to uh, the the number of years that you ran it uh, while still having a full time job. Everything that we do obviously has an effect on us in some way. Have you seen anything where running this company has, how do you think it's affected you for, for better or worse? Oh, well, you know, I suppose everything is a double-edged sword, and that's, that's really true of anything in life. Um, what I can tell you is that um, it is the most rewarding work that I have ever done. Um, there is definitely something to being your own boss to, um, 
having a creative vision and seeing it through and owning that process. Um, I, I've always been a creative soul. Um, and you, you know, in my marketing job and when I was working in the film business, you know, any, anytime, you know, you, you're, you're working in a creative field, but you are working for a company, um, you are part of the creative solution. Um, but there is either, you know, there's always someone either ranked above you or a client or someone else that is going to take your vision and make it their vision. And so you're, you become more of a craftsman than a true creative because you, you have to, you know, uh, end up seeing their vision through. Mm -hmm. So I, what I found most rewarding is that, um, Love it or hate it, the stuff you see, you know, coming out is uh, is a direct output from uh, from from my vision. Even when it hasn't been my my original game design, uh, as some of them more recently have been, um, I end up adopting those as my own children and um, and seeing them through as my children. And um, there is something absolutely rewarding about the creation of something that I just have always loved. Now that said, the downside, uh, you know, it certainly impacted my life in that, um, it's really taken a lot of time and attention away from other things. It's, it's very difficult to balance, uh, the time I spend with my family, mm. um, the time I spend with friends and other things. Um, it's something that, um, I've had to make sure I, I try to set aside time for to make sure when I have that time, it's focused time and I'm not, you know, I'm not still just distracted and, um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's been all sorts of, uh, impacts, uh, uh to, to my life. I, I, I think anytime you, you set down a, a path and then follow a passion. It, it's transformative. Um, but by and large, sure. uh, for me personally, it's been a really positive one. Well, obviously you've, you've picked up a lot of information over the years in doing this. And, you know, we all think of this at some point, whether we're doing something in a creative industry like you or whether we're working as nine to five or whatever, but eventually there's always that one thing, man, if I knew then what I know now, I would have done X differently. Do you have anything like that? You go, man, I wish I would have known this. Even with all the stuff that I had prepared, I didn't, I, I would have done this completely differently. Hmm. Well, I suppose uh, you can always take a look back and, um, and say, you know, how, how would my path have changed if, um, I can tell you that, uh, I, I wish that I had started sooner on, on this journey. Uh, um, you know, like I said, it, it took 15 years just to reach this point, um, which is not true of everyone. But again, I was, I was balancing a whole other career as I was building this one very sure. slowly and, you know, calculatingly. But if I was a, if I was a younger man and I had less, less at risk and I didn't have a family to feed, uh, and I could have started, you know, out of college or, you know, things like that. Well, I think, um, 
I, I, I might have a more substantial company right now. Um, but on the other hand, everything that I, that I did, um, crafted who I am and what skills I bring to the table and what perspectives I have. So I also don't know that I would necessarily, uh, sacrifice any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the answer is, would I do it differently? I don't know if I would. Um, nothing, nothing that would be major. Um, but, um, it might have given me the confidence to think bigger sooner. And I think um, that's probably something that uh, hold, maybe held me back a little bit too long and probably holds a lot of people back. Oh, yeah. You know, you know the, 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 the fear that I, geez, I don't really know. It's, the, it's like the, the imposter syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and looking back and saying, well, you know what? You have the skills. You have the intelligence. You, you know, you kind of knew what you were doing. And, and you were learning at, at every step. But if you can, if you can marshal your your fear of the unknown and battle, um, you know, confidence issues in in yourself and what you're capable of, then potentially you can reach higher more quickly. Yeah, um, maybe beat back that uh, the 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 looming thought of the cost of failure if uh, yeah. things go wrong. Yeah. Um. Well, steer steer away from the the more more serious nature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to to end the to end this interview portion, I want to kind of ask just something, uh, 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 something that as having been at Gen Con fifteen years, you you must have something. You know, having been at all of these conventions, what is? Um, did you meet anyone, or did anything happen? that really surprised you? Somebody that in the industry you always really um, uh, respected or uh, somebody that you had a great uh, love of their game or an actor or um, just somebody you just didn't expect to meet in the process of doing this? So I think my answer to that is going to be unconventional um, because... um, when you first asked the question, you didn't qualify. You just said, was there someone that surprised you? True. And then when you continued, you know, it was more a notable known figure. Yes. Um, I have certainly met a lot of game designers that I respect. Um, I, I've met, uh, you know, Will Wheaton, and he was great to meet. You know, there, there have been lots of people that I've met that I truly respect, and um, don't know that I would have said, Oh, you know, of, of course I would, I would, you know, bump into this person and have a chat with them. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think the most, the most profound, um, surprise on who I ended up meeting and how, how much that impacted, um, my company and, and, and me, um, I was at my, um, I believe it was my second Gen Con, 
And um, at that time, I, you know, I now had two products. Um, you know, Candyman had just launched. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we had Dead Hand um, and, uh, and Hex Hex. My friend Jess and I were trying to run our little 10 by 10 booth. And we couldn't, we couldn't handle all the demos and stopping and taking the, you know, the sales that were, were, we were generating. We couldn't, we didn't have enough hands to, to do all of it. Yeah. So we were really struggling. Now, earlier in the day, we had obviously done a whole bunch of demos for, for people, including uh, there were these uh, four women who stopped by um, and had a great time with Candyman. Well, they stopped by later that afternoon and saw us struggling in the booth. And so they walked into the booth and they kind of like got right, right into my face. And one of them said, okay, listen, take that sale. We've got this. (laughs) And I, I like blinked. I like, I couldn't understand what she was saying. She said, go take care of the sale. I've got the demo. And I was like, if you're in headlights, I, I was just frozen. She's like, Go. <laughs> so I went and I took the cash sale. She sat down, and all all four of them sat down at the demo tables and started running the demos. That's and my amazing. friend Justin, my friend Justin and I are blinking in, in disbelief, like what what what's ha- what's happening? <laughs> and and we were absolutely blown away and they stayed with us for the entire afternoon running demos and you know we we like at the end we, we thanked them so much like you know here can, you know, can i give you a game They're like no you sell that if at the end of the show you still have one we'll think about it <laughs> that's 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 well, a wonderful act of kindness it's amazing and so here's here's the crazy thing um they were there the the next day at 9 a.m. And they ended up working the entire show with us. Wow. And then the next year, they were back and they brought friends. Really? And I never ended up creating uh, a demo team. The demo team created itself. And, um, so the people that you saw working my Gen Con booth, um, all came from, from that initial act of kindness. In fact, uh, Kendra is, is one of those women who first stepped into my booth and she's, you know, here we are 15 years later and she is still helping me out. That is fantastic. Um, so when I talk about, you know, what surprised me most and, and you know, what, what, what people, you know, um, made the biggest impression on me, it's, it's the, it's the fans, it's the gamers, it's the, it's the people who would take their, their own vacation time to come and help me out at, at these shows. And, um, What's funny is I, I always feel like I can't do enough for them, and they always feel like I do too much. And I guess that's the perfect way that you want it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, honestly, I, I 
I would not be where I am now with without those folks. And now they're you know, they're friends, they're family. You know, we we look forward to seeing each other, even just to spend time with each other. Um, and uh, and the fact that they're working their asses off is uh, just to their credit. Um, they they have every bit as much passion and excitement for the game. And um, and did I see that coming? No, I could have never. Have, have guessed or expected that would be the case, but man, um, I tell you what, the, the, the next time, uh, you know, any of the listeners, you know, stop by my booth, just appreciate how fabulous these folks are and, and, and give them some thanks because they're, they're just amazing. That's, that's very cool. That's very cool. Well then I guess my final question to kind of wrap up the interview is um, kind of to turn it over to you to go back to that whole uh, thing that uh, uh, mentioning the the tonal shift, uh, starting with Smirk and Dagger, adding Smirk and Laughter. Could you explain a little bit what it is that you're trying to accomplish, what your, your goal is with the addition of this uh, new face to your business? Sure, yeah. Um, well... If people know my company, they know that for you know for 14 years, I was absolutely dedicated to the art of the Take That game, um, and that was because that, that was that was the, that's what gave me the most joy is is to to line people up. You know, I can pl- I can plan their demise, I can giggle while I'm doing it, and we can all have a good laugh as as it you know comes to fruition. Um, I I love the. Uh, the high player interaction and all of that sort of thing. So that's why I dedicated myself uh, to that for so long. But um, at one point, I tried to stretch outside of uh, of those confines. I had come up with a game I actually first pitched to Hasbro. It was called uh, Butaku. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it was called something else at the time. But um, but it was a, it was a pub style dice game um, that didn't have any take that at all. Um, but it was push your luck. So, you know, instead of screwing your neighbor, you could screw yourself by going, pushing too far. So I was like, well, you know, that's tangentially, you know, screwing yourself, I guess is, you know, close. Semi-associated. So, yeah. So let me, let me go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll give this a whirl. Well, I brought it to the Gamma Trade show one year and it was all already on press. Uh, and I, you know, started showcasing it to retailers and distributors and every retailer that came up was like, well, wait a minute. Where's the dagger in the smirk and dagger game? I'm like, oh no! <laughs> I, I had I had I had built such a a strong brand, which was my intention, that it was very hard to go outside. So I actually had to stop the presses and think of something I could I could add to the game without adding any cost that would add more of my flavor to it. Um, but it was a, it was a hard lesson and I, I realized, well, I can't step outside, um, without getting some kind of a, a reaction like this is not your game. So as I started now thinking about growth, about, about, you know, um, now doing this full time, one of the great things about my brand had been, you know, if you loved one of my games, man, you probably loved almost all of them because they had the same kind of energy. Mm-hmm. But if you didn't, and there are plenty of people who don't like take that game, then I got nothing else for you. And 
that's a tough proposition for a company, you know, where we've got to now have five to six titles a year. And I, I wasn't even sure if I could create six really great backstabbing games a year. Makes sense. So, so I said, well, I can't dilute the brand, but I'm going to need something else. And if I really think about it, what I love about Smirk and Dagger was the ability to like tap into people's emotions. And if so I, if I sidestep just to the other side of that, if my whole brand is about just tapping into people's emotions as they play and creating a real experience at the table, there's a whole palette of new colors to paint with. And all of those other emotions that don't live in the backstabbing realm, I could... I could create a new brand for, and that's what Smirk and Laughter was all about. So the two brands now taking together are really all about stirring your emotions as you play. Now, sometimes it's going to be a boisterous party game. Sometimes that's going to be um, a, a, a heartwarming sense of, you know, this is the, the, like our, our, our game before there were stars. It's just a, such an emotionally rewarding storytelling game. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's uncanny, um, but I'm looking for like all different types of emotional hits now. Uh, Koi that's coming out in September is going to be a very zen feeling strategy game where you're a koi fish moving through a pond. Hmm. Um, so, um, but uh, yeah, and at first I was like, well, I, I hope people will will not react like they did when I when I launched Sutaku. Um, but I think so, so long as you set people to expectations and they understand what they're in for, um, then it's been absolutely fine. And so far, the new brand has been uh, doing gangbusters. People are really excited both in the industry because obviously they saw it first at things like the Gamma Trade Show. Sure. Um, but now, now fans are also getting a first look at some of these titles. Um, and I've done just, you know, the art on these games is gorgeous. They draw, it just, it draws you in, it wraps you in theme, and it delivers a really cool experience at the table that really is anchored in some sort of emotionality. And it's a winning combination. It really is. Well, that's definitely what's often going to have a more lasting impact on, on the player. I mean, strategy is often well and good, but... Uh, a lot of people feel that there's only so many worker placement games that you can have, so many uh, area control games that you can have before they start bleeding together and not really taking a place in your mind. But if you can get something with, like you said, that emotional that emotional anchor, then that that keeps its place for for a long time. Well, that's certainly the goal, and you know, and now mind you, I've got a. I've got plenty of space in my heart for things that are even abstract games mm-hmm. um, that I just think, you know, are, are here forever and amazing games. Um, but, but my brand is really kind of set up. Um, another way that I describe it is when, when you get up from the table from playing one of my games, um, my hope is that you leave the table and you're, you're talking about the experience of the game. You've got a story to tell about what happened at the table. Um, and it's not about, you know, oh, I really optimized all my points. It's about <laughs> the, 
you know, it's about the, the, the feeling and, it, and the experience and the, the, uh, the way that the, the theme drove you into the, the world of the game and kept you talking about it afterwards. And I think that is, that can be the, the power of a game on, on a really on an entertainment kind of a front. Um, it's, it's like experiencing a movie. You know, it, it drives you right into the theme. Like yeah, our, our game Paramedics, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, still a Smirk and Dagger title, but that game, when you are done with it, you know, it, it immerses you in the in the in the feel of being a paramedic with lives on the line. And when you sit back from that game, you're like, you're winded. You're like, oh my, oh my god! <laughs> it's because it's a heart it's a heart attack in a box, and it really makes you feel uh, all of that pressure. Yeah. Well, that that is excellent, and I I definitely suggest anybody that is a listener that is not normally. Uh, inclined to to be a gamer of some kind to to give your products a try i know my the first one i purchased back in the day was cutthroat caverns and and it was it it, and still is a a staple a lot your games have quite a bit of replay value which is always a goal with any designer oh thank you Um, yeah and and I know we've definitely appreciated, it. and I I also appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me today, and uh, I've uh, I've enjoyed myself greatly. Um, oh well, it was my great pleasure. Um, is there um, should somebody wish to know more about you? I know they can look up Smirk and Dagger online, but do you have a specific? Uh, uh, a specific uh, Twitter or Facebook that uh, we should mention to everyone? Sure, yeah. Um, you can, uh, on Facebook, we are Smirk Ampersand Dagger. And on Twitter, we're Smirk spelled out A-N-D Dagger. Um, and of course, SmirkandDagger.com. Um, and, uh, you know, if uh, people have uh, questions for me and other things, uh, my emails are, uh, you know, part of the, the website and you can uh, just contact me directly well that's excellent and uh thank you again i've uh, really uh enjoyed talking to you today and hopefully we'll be able to touch base again down the line and kind of see how things are going again sounds great well thank you so much for having me on thank you and we will see you our our pudding pack uh in the future and uh thank you for joining us for another episode 